Hello, it's Thursday 23rd of February. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up the top travel talking points from the second month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So February is proving to be another fascinating month for travel and tourism here in Southeast Asia, especially as the competition to attract both Chinese and Indian visitors is starting to ramp up. So today we've selected five top talking points across the region, and then we'll delve a little more deeply into the China-India battle that's developing across the region. So, Hannah, let's start straight away. No surprises about where we're heading first. No, it's got to be Thailand, isn't it? I I don't think we can do a month without talking about Thailand and something that they've decided. Um, But this is finally this 300 Thai baht tourism fee, which, again, I feel like I've been talking about with you, Gary, for probably the last two years or so, right? They keep saying we're going to implement it and then it gets postponed and then we're going to implement it and then it's postponed. But this time it really seems like it's going to go ahead. Um, From June, they're going to implement this tourism fee of 300 Thai baht for air travelers, 150 Thai baht for those arrivals over land or water. But Gary, the figures don't quite stack up, do they? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. We have been talking about this for a very, very long time because as we know with Thai bureaucracy, it takes a long time and then it goes through the, the cabinet and then it gets approved and all that kind of thing. But as you said, it doesn't like it's happening from June. But the figures underpinning it, the figures that were reported for this uh, are just very, very strange. So the, the fee, as you said, is Thai, is 300 baht. But the underpinning figure that they hope to achieve, or the, the tourism minister said they hope to achieve this year, is 3.9 billion Thai baht. 3.9 billion. Now, if you actually do the math there and you work that out, that would equate to a minimum of 130 million visitors in just six months, because it doesn't start until June. So those figures clearly have no correlation to anything. But I think we have to then look a little bit further at this, Hannah, because I think Thailand is obviously clearly hoping that 300 Thai baht, that's what, that's less than 10 US dollars. I think they're just hoping that visitors will just accept that and just pay it. You know, it's not a huge amount for most tourists coming into the country if you've paid uh, for flights and hotels. But it's the concept here is why is this actually being introduced now? uh, And what's the purpose? Now, The Thai tourism minister said that part of this sum will be used to provide health and insurance coverage for tourists. Part of the sum, now remember they're talking about 3.9 billion Thai baht. Uh, And then later in the same article in in Bangkok Post, it said that the annual figure for tourism health costs in Thailand is around 300 to 400 million. So that's a huge shortfall on this figure of 3.9 billion that was proposed. So what's the rest of this going to be for? And where's the transparency? Now, is this going to be used for development? Is it going to be used for marketing? Is it going to be used for sustainable tourism? Absolutely no no word on that. Um, And I think the lack of transparency here is is a story that I think will run and run. What do you you think, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, I think we discussed this perhaps last year when it looked like it was going to be implemented. And I think we both agreed that, yes, I don't think it is going to have this massive impact on tourists coming in, at least by air. I mean, of course, whether it's going to have an impact on some of the land crossings, maybe, although it is a you know a reduced fee, 150 type baht. But you're right, Gary, what is it going to be used for? I mean, 
over the last couple of years, we've seen all sorts, haven't we? Everything from talking about um, tourism development for destinations to sustainability um, to even improving accessibility at um, tourism destinations. So it is very opaque. We, we don't really know. They're, they're not really pinning it down other than this, like you say, providing this health and insurance coverage for tourists. But of course, at the same time, they're still warning tourists, oh, but you still need your own health insurance. This is really for those tourists, I suppose, who choose to come into Thailand without health insurance and then run into massive health insurance problems because they have an accident or something like that. Um, but you're right, you know, 300 to 400 million Thai baht versus 3.9 billion. Yeah, where's that money going? What's that going to be used for? And I'm sure that's something that tourism stakeholders would be extremely interested to know in Thailand. Yeah, I agree. And I think also, how is it going to be collected? Is it going to be collected at, uh, upon arrival? And, and how will it be connected? Is it, do you have to have Thai baht to pay for this? Can you pay with a credit card? Can you pay with a QR code? And none of that seems particularly clear. So um, I guess they've got to iron that out pretty quickly because they're starting in June. Yeah, exactly. I, I think before, at the end of last year, they were talking about the airlines having to collect it. But I think the airlines weren't particularly happy about that either, because then that means that they've got to build up whole systems to be able to integrate <laughs> that and then find mechanisms to give the government that money. And how do you distinguish between whether it's a Thai citizen booking a on and on and on. <laughs> Not straightforward. So yes, it will be interesting to see what happens come June. Yeah, so we'll keep our eyes on that one as a coming storm there. Moving on to Malaysia, Hannah. Now, this is also about entry to the country, but this isn't actually about payment. This is about the ability to enter the country. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, so this has been something, I mean, actually, if we go back to Visit Malaysia Year 2020, this was something that was really touted, wasn't it? This idea of visa on arrival for Indians and for Chinese nationals, particularly to boost tourism numbers back in 2020. And of course, we know how 2020 ended and, you know, those those kind of visa policies reverted to the normal and them having to apply for visas before they landed. But now that even the tourism minister, who's, who's a fairly newly appointed um, tourism minister with the new government, has urged the Home Ministry to look at expanding visa on arrival for all countries. And he was saying especially for China and India, and really recognizing that Malaysia needs to do that to be able to stay competitive. You know, he was saying that it projects the wrong image for our country by not preparing for and welcoming the return of a large influx of tourists to Malaysia. Um, and he really was asking the Home Ministry, please look into expanding this. So whether that happens or not, let's see. But at least there is positive movement from the tourism minister himself. And of course, there's a lot of pressure from the tourism industry within Malaysia too, who really see the benefits of that. So the Malaysian Inbound Tourism Association, Meta, has urged for this swift um, implementation of the visa on arrival scheme for tourists from all countries, just to really remove those barriers. And as we know, you know, the more barriers that are in place for tourists, particularly in this really competitive environment now, as tourists are starting to return, um, the more tourists you're likely to see. Absolute no-brainer. There's no argument against this, I, I can see. I think you're, you're right. The new tourism minister has been passed, a little bit of a hospital pass here by the previous government, because you've got to look at it. You say, well, Malaysia's borders have been open for 11 months. You know, why hasn't this been done before? And why are they talking about it now? This should have been done a long time ago. So he's got to clear up a mess, I guess. But um, yeah, and it, and it will probably take a little bit of time. But as you say, Malaysia's competitiveness 
is suffering because of that. Absolutely. So Gary, the next one is a pick from you. And this is actually something that kind of escaped me. I, I was saying it, it went under my radar, but this is something that you very much had on your radar. Um, and this is about Japan and Southeast Asia. So tell us. Uh, we did discuss this, Hannah, I think about a year ago. Um, ANA, or Nippon Airlines, announced that it was going to launch a new low-cost airline called Air Japan. This will be the third airline in its portfolio. It has ANA, which is for longer haul. It has Peach, which I think is going to be sort of mid-haul flights. But it was going to launch this year um, Air Japan, which is a low-cost carrier. And it's saying now, because it's actually just, ANA has just launched its strategy for uh, up to the end of 2025. And it's saying that primarily the new Air Japan will focus on Southeast Asia. The actual official statement is that it will try to capture inbound demand from overseas by launching flights to major cities in Southeast Asia, where the market opportunity is large and growing. Now, Hannah, you've been to Japan quite a lot in, in recent times. We've, just, we've discussed this with the JNTO, mm. and we've also discussed this ourselves. And we know that there is huge demand for travel from Southeast Asia to Japan. Uh, this seems like a very, very sensible move. Absolutely. So if you look at the January 2023 stats um, of inbound travelers into Japan, um, around 15, 15.4% of all arrivals into Japan were Southeast Asia and India. They lump those two together. But India, out of that 15.4, is just 0.6%. Um, so really, you know, we're talking about almost 15% of all arrivals into Japan are coming from Southeast Asia. So it really makes sense to expand those links. And yes, we have Air Asia X. Uh, Thai Air Asia, Vietjet have got a lot of flights in terms of that low cost. But there is really um, more room for competition, I think, and different entry points too. A lot of airlines now have ramped back up their links to Tokyo, um, to Osaka, uh, to a certain extent. But all of those uh, kind of secondary or tertiary destinations within Japan, you know, uh, Fukuoka, Hokkaido, Okinawa, um, all of these places have still got huge potential for Southeast Asian travelers to go to. Um, and I, I'm sure that they're looking at those kind of opportunities and thinking, okay, how can we expand beyond just Tokyo, um, just Kyoto? Um, so it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting. And I'm personally a bit excited about it. Maybe more options for me to travel to Japan later in the year, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think you make a good point there about the secondary cities as well, because that's one thing that pre-pandemic, uh, Chinese airlines have become very, very good at flying into and out of cities, as you say, like Fukuoka and, and around the country. And China actually accounted for 30%, 30% of all inbound arrivals to Japan in 2019. Of course, Japan now is trying to look to diversify its inbound market, doesn't want to just be so reliant on the Chinese market. But also, Hannah, you know, flights go two ways, don't they? So, of course, it wants to attract travelers from ASEAN nations, but ASEAN nations in return will get more flights coming from Japan, uh, more opportunities to bring more Japanese business and leisure travelers into the region. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that countries like the Philippines, like Vietnam, um, like Malaysian Borneo, so Sabah, Sarawak would be really excited by this move as well. And I would imagine that they would all be kind of jostling to to be some of the recipients for this Air Japan flights just because of, like you say, those those links and those opportunities that it brings for that inbound Japanese market too. Interesting story. And we'll both be watching the website to see which uh, destinations are going to be the first ones to be offering flights. So let's move to number four, Hannah. This takes us to Vietnam. This is a different kind of tourism story. Uh, tell us a bit more about this one. 
Yeah, so there was a report out looking into plastic waste. And basically, it was talking about um, the amount of plastic waste generated, particularly by tourists in Vietnam. And it was estimating that in 2019, it was about 116,000 tons of plastic waste. So in terms of the split between it, um, it's it's more or less 50-50. So around 61,000 tons of this plastic waste in 2019 were from domestic tourists. Um, 55,000 tons came from international tourists, but there were only 18 million international tourists. So I guess you could then argue per person, their international tourists are throwing away more plastic waste than domestic tourists. But the big question is, how do they know <laughs> whose waste is whose, Gary? <laughs> You'd love to have been on the research for this, wouldn't you? How on earth do you measure that? I mean, it is an interesting report. We shouldn't deride it too much because Vietnam is one of the world's largest contributors of plastic waste into the oceans. It has a, a dreadful record of recycling plastic and re upcycling plastic. A lot of it does go into the waterways. So this is a, this is a very, very valid report in terms of raising awareness that this is something that tourism has to be much more tuned to. Um, but as you say, dividing up those numbers, they're, they're not underpinned. We haven't seen any um, deeper dive into how those figures were calculated. But they make headlines. And I guess that, that's the, the importance at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully that will make some impact and wake up some of the, the local governments that, you know, this kind of thing is being reported about Vietnam. Yes, hopefully that that will have some kind of positive impact. But absolutely, you're right. It's, um, it is a super serious subject and plastic waste really should be on the top of government's agendas to figure out what they're going to do. And if they're increasing the number of tourists, how do you deal with that increased number of waste? Yeah, particularly as, as the report says that without immediate measures, the amount of plastic waste from tourism activities will triple by 2030. We have seen that a lot of hotel industry particularly have cut down on their plastic use, but even so, there is a lot of uh, single-use plastics that, that are bought from retail stores and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of work to be done. There. Absolutely. And so from Vietnam, let's hop across uh, the sea to the Philippines, where they're talking cruise tourism. And last week, they were talking about cruise tourism an awful lot. And actually, it seems to be a bit of a trend, really. I keep seeing more and more Southeast Asian nations reporting nearly every single cruise ship that arrives into their country. There's an article about, oh, this cruise ship came and it had this many passengers and... It really seems to be this, almost like this icon that people are using for tourism recovery, like the cruise ships are back, tourism is back. Whether, of course, that's a good thing is up for discussion. But the Philippines certainly seem to see a lot of potential um, within the cruise industry, don't they, Gary? Yeah, they do. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's an archipelago nation. You, there's no land border crossings into the Philippines. So you've either got to fly or, or get there by cruise ship. And cruise ship passengers in 2019 were growing quite fast. There was you know, opportunities to increase that. But as you say, Hannah, I think the interesting thing about the fact that this is being talked about now is there's almost a degree of incredulity about it. You know, if we go back to the start of the pandemic and you know those what were they called the um, floating petri dishes of the, the the cruise ships that where there were outbreaks of COVID-19 on board, and it did look at that time as though cruising was in, was in big, big trouble. We've seen across the region, Singapore has certainly contributed to this with its cruises to nowhere, to actually keeping uh, the cruise sector in people's minds, making it a little bit more safe on board, having more medical facilities and that kind of thing. But it does look as though the industry is coming back in the region. And to be honest, in that sense, I'm not particularly surprised because it was on such a uh, growth curve before the pandemic. 
and it looks like it's heading back that way. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's not a surprise. I think what's interesting coming out from the Philippines is that they're angling for themselves to be this center of cruising, not only for the cruises themselves and, you, you know, attracting those cruise ships um, as a destination, but also for, they were talking about crew training, uh, crewing themselves. And of course, you know, the Philippines provides a lot of maritime workers, a lot of cruise ship workers, um, worldwide, um, looking at cruise line business outsourcing cruise ship maintenance services in Asia. So they are not just looking at this, okay, we're, we're going to be this hub and all of these cruise ships are going to visit us. They really want to position themselves as like this central point for cruise ships, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And added to that was that last week, they also signed an alliance with Taiwan and South Korea to form the Asia Archipelago Cruise Alliance, essentially to attract international cruise liners to East Asia, um, with even Japan said to be looking at taking part as well. So that's an interesting kind of, you know, Philippines is not just looking towards capturing those cruises from Southeast Asia. They've got those Eastern Asian neighbors as well that they potentially can attract to. They can almost act as that center hub between East Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Taiwan has been pushing this um, in recent months and Philippines obviously is quite geographically well positioned, as you say, bridging between Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. That's quite an interesting uh, aspect. And then the figures, I mean, the figures that they were talking about is what, 139 cruise ship calls in 2023 in the Philippines. And that would be up what around thirty six percent on twenty nineteen. So that's quite a big, quite a big rise. But then when you look at it, one hundred and thirty nine cruise ships to a country the size of the Philippines is relatively small in terms of the, the whole regional spread. I would guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the tourism secretary was expecting cruise passengers to generate pretty low number in terms of tourism receipts for the economy this year, just four million dollars, which I thought well, that's pretty low. So certainly, there's a long way for them to go if that's the direction that they want to go but like you said they've they've got the potential there an archipelago nation in between these two other regions and this hub for cruise ship workers as well so they've got a lot of things um, going in their favor there yeah okay so let's start talking about india and china hannah the the battle is on Mm -hmm. amongst countries to to attract travelers from both countries Uh, let's first of all just take a quick stop off in in india to look at air india's jet purchase or its alignment of was it 470 almost 500 new airplanes in in deals that it signed with airbus and boeing this made huge headlines around the world last week when when these deals were announced because it is it's a huge number of new jets what this means is a number of things that air india has recently been taken over by the tata group who originally founded the airline many many years ago before it was nationalized it has singapore airlines on board as a major um, stakeholder and so what it wants to do is, is, is completely scale up um, Air India's international capacity, its domestic capacity as well. Where this goes in future and how those planes will be used, what period of time they will be um, brought on board is, is still a bit uh, difficult to see. It's not a bad time to be leasing or buying planes at the moment. You can get quite good deals on them at the moment. This does look like a longer term play, particularly for expanding interests in the US and in Europe, but I guess we'll see more into our region as well. And this comes back to the point really about the growth of the Indian market, doesn't it, Hannah? How fast is this outbound market from India going to grow? The domestic industry is growing very, very fast. And India will be, you know, one of the the world's biggest 
aviation markets right up there with the US and, and, and China, but it's still got a bit of catch up to do. Where, where do you think this is headed? Yeah, I mean, like they're saying, you know, Indian population is exploding, middle class is growing. I guess they just need that many planes to be able to support that. And of course, they've got so much, you know, it's such a huge country that I'm sure that there's a lot of potential for them to deploy these planes, even just domestically, and then um, spread out as they find those international routes. But as you're saying, you know, that competition for India, certainly amongst Southeast Asia, is it's still really hot. Um, we were talking last year and at the beginning of this year before China was reopening their borders saying, okay, right, there's this focus on India. Is that only because China's borders are closed now? But we can still see that people are still pursuing India. So um, I think it was just last week, India had its South Asia Tourism and Travel Exchange, which is one of their large um, travel fairs there. And nearly every Southeast Asian tourism board had some kind of booth. Tourism Malaysia was there with roadshows as well. Penang was doing a roadshow across several cities. Um, Indonesia was there. Um, Singapore was there. I believe Thailand as well, Vietnam, Da Nang. So everybody is trying to get in on this India action still, which is is kind of encouraging, actually, because I was, you know, wondering, is India just going to be like this flash in the pan in terms of interest from tourism boards? But it does seem that that interest is is sustaining right now. Yeah, it, it does. I think there are certain comparisons, of course, that make sense about India and China. I mean, they are on completely different curves in terms of their GDP per capita, um, their, their economic growth, and also well, the size of the population in India is, is, has overtaken China as the world's most populous country, has a faster growing population, whereas China's is actually starting to shrink. But actually, when you look at the air aviation economy, they're entirely different. You know, India's aviation system is much more competitive. It's much more price sensitive, uh, whereas China's obviously is very state dominated, and that enables the, the big Chinese airlines to be able to select and choose their routes, and they get fairly protected on doing that. And whereas in India, it's not like that at all. You're going to be competing with everybody on every route. And our good friend Shukor Yusuf of Endow Analytics published an interesting figure this week about the size of the aviation economy. And he said that uh, China's big three airlines, Air China, China Eastern, and China Southern, have total fleet of about 1,600, 1,600 planes. Uh, in India, it's about 800 at the moment, so it's about half the size. So, you know, there's a lot of ground to make up. And I know that a lot of countries are looking at the potential for Air India and for India as, as a, a market in general. But at the moment, it is still potential. And until you can actually start getting more flights from the secondary, tertiary and even fourth tier cities, which is what has happened from China over the past decade, um, you're still competing for basically the same market from the metro cities. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one interesting um, air link that has been missing, which really surprised me when I was reading it, is that apparently there were no direct flights from India and Bali. Um, and this one you would think is a bit of a no-brainer because a lot of Indian travelers use um, Malaysian, either Malaysia Airlines or Melindo, um, to transit via KL to reach Bali. So you're right, it is still missing some of these vital links to some of the key tourism destinations to those secondary cities. But at least when it comes to India now, they have lifted those pre-departure COVID-19 test requirements that they had for travellers coming from or via Thailand and Singapore. They did that about 13th of February, um, just with some random testing remaining. So that might stimulate 
Indian travelers, again, that might stimulate some of the airlines to continue looking then for these new destinations, these new routes to reopen or open entirely new ones. Yeah, that's true. And there has also been quite um, strong investment into airport infrastructure in India as well to, to, to boost up capacities and actually just make it a more pleasant experience for people to fly in and out. So, you know, that's definitely on India's side. I'm not saying India won't grow. Of course, it will grow very, very fast, but it's but playing catch up with China. You know, they are at the moment uh, two very, very different aviation and outbound tourism economies. Absolutely. And so let's have a look at what's happening with China then. And of course, you know, Group travel reopened. We, we talked about this in our January roundup to many countries within Southeast Asia. It's probably easier to name the countries that it didn't reopen to. So it didn't reopen to Brunei. It didn't reopen to Vietnam. But pretty much all of the other countries, it has reopened to group travel. Now, have these countries seen masses amounts of, of Chinese travelers and Chinese groups since then? Not really. Um, again, I don't think that's particularly surprising. Just we know how limited seats are on these flights right now. And therefore, to be able to get group seats on flights would be even more difficult and, and costing and everything else. But, you know, Trip.com group reported that the number of searches for outbound package tours from China um, has increased fivefold. Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, Cambodia, the most searched destinations. Um, so it really looks like Southeast Asia is on the Chinese outbound travelers radar. And they're really looking at that. Yeah, I think so. I think that makes absolute sense. I, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing China ramp up its, its ecosystem of travel and tourism, as we saw with all other countries as soon as they reopened. Of course, the problem in China is that the, the delay and the impact on the travel industry has just been longer. It was almost three years of, of closure. And that's had a huge impact. All of the OTAs, all of the airlines, they had to pivot inwards. They let staff go, their staff positions changed that they focus only really for the last two and a half years on domestic travel. Now you've got to turn that around and turn what is a huge industry back on, onto outbound mode again. And that's going to take time. From what I'm hearing and talking to a lot of people in China over the past few days, there is starting to be quite a lot of interesting bookings for the summer school holidays, uh, which are coming up in, in what, July, August this year. So I think that's when we might start to see the real push outbound, probably October, the back end of the year is when you'll start to see a real upswing. But there are reports in, in places like Hoi An and Luan Prabang that Chinese tourists are coming back of their own accord, uh, not the group tourism uh, travelers, but independent travelers. And that's, you know, that's one element that we, we kind of overlook is the fact that independent travelers from China can go anywhere. Um, it's just the group tour packages at the moment. Chinese travel agencies are only able to sell group tour packages to 20 countries around the world. But you know, in some of those countries, for example, there are a couple of countries in Europe what's to stop you from actually having that booking to go into Hungary, but then to travel to other countries, absolutely nothing. So, you know, we, we kind of have to take that, I think, with a little bit of a pinch of salt at the moment. But, you know, it's early days. I think that's the point to stress. It's still very early days and we have to manage expectations, I think, over the next two or three months. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting to see some of the moves that some countries in Southeast Asia have been putting to um, attract Chinese tourists. So Cambodia is a really interesting one because in the last month they have applied for membership for China's cross-border interbank payment systems. Um, they have announced that Cambodia will accept payment in Chinese yuan, in addition to Cambodian real and USD at all tourism services, hotels and restaurants. And they have lowered the PCR fee for outbound travelers um, to $50 from a previous $130. Now, that last one isn't particularly aimed at Chinese travelers, but given that Chinese travelers need that PCR test to return back to China, 
I'm pretty sure that that's made this this adjustment is made with China definitely in mind. Yeah, so Hannah, I mean, we have been talking all year last year about India. Now we're starting to talk much, much more about China. That, those are for obvious reasons, but you know, countries are counting up the numbers, aren't they? Thailand, of course, is doing that. Where, what kind of other comparisons that we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so Thailand, um, you know, in conjunction with this um, South Asia Travel and Tourism Exchange, hosted a, a million thanks, amazing Thailand night reception to celebrate that they've had over a million tourists from India to Thailand. And it, in 2022, it was the second largest source market. So it is, like you say, yes, there's this focus on China, but India is is going to be there. And, you know, tourist boards, I think now that they have woken up to it, are going to continue to pursue it. Like you said, Gary, China is catching up, and we're not necessarily the group tours, but the FIT. Um, so from the 1st to 7th of February, there were around 21,000 Indian arrivals to Thailand. China's now almost 29,000. So they've now overtaken India's place as the fourth top market into the country. So I think it's going to be this intense competition um, between the two, and the tourism boards are going to have to balance that. Because like you say, yes, China previously... Um, definitely was a more mature market into Southeast Asia, I'd say, than perhaps India. But China have still got to play that catch up to where India is in terms of reopening. So they might be fairly evenly matched, I think, as we go through 2023. Um, and tourism boards are really going to have to weigh up which which market they put their tourism dollars into. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch that, that roll out across the year. Um, and as you say, they'll be putting tourism dollars into both countries, uh, where will the returns come from? I think that's going to be fascinating to see. I think a lot really depends on how the airlines in and out of China get access to, to second and third tier cities, because that will bring a lot more um, demand probably later in the year, I'd imagine. Well, with that race um, that we'll be keeping a close eye on, that brings us to a close for the show for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep, and as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. I'm heading to ITB Berlin next week, but Gary will be back with a special guest to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism. We look forward to talking to you soon.